This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review. It is Friday, last day of the week. We're doing infectious disease and immunology. Question, Daphne, how are you this morning? I'm doing good, buddy. All right. Um, very excited that Journal um, Club is coming back on, on Sunday. I've missed Journal yeah, Club. Yeah, I know. You've been missing it. You've mm-hmm. said that. So we're looking, we're looking forward yeah. to it. All right. Let me pull up the questions. We are starting off today uh, due to... Uh, editorial decisions with question 67. Um, All right, question 67. A woman is pregnant at 39 weeks of gestation. She contacts her obstetrician because her primary care provider has just diagnosed her with chickenpox. Following the timing of maternal infection that places the infant at greatest risk for a varicella infection is that is such a high yield question yep hold on choice a between five days before delivery until two weeks after delivery choice b between 20 days prior to delivery to six days before delivery choice c during the second half of the pregnancy and up to 21 days prior to delivering. Choice D, during the first 20 weeks of gestation. Choice E, there's an equal risk for the infant at any point during the the gestation. I'm not sure if you have a different version than I do. (laughs) But none of what you said was was the right answer. Maybe there's a typo in my my version. (laughs) I have A listed between five days before delivery until two days after delivery. Okay. That makes more you sense. You just doesn't say that? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> Which coincidentally, thankfully, is the right choice. And I love this question because it's one of my favorite mnemonics <laughs> about remembering uh, varicella infectivity. So um, varicella five days before delivery until two days after delivery. And I remember that because the varicella starts with a V, Roman numeral five, and has two L's in it, like Roman numeral two. So varicella, five days before delivery until two days after delivery. Very good. Yeah, somehow, um, yeah, that's that's what I see in the answer choice as well. So uh, I apologize for that. So five days before delivery until two days after delivery. So um, there's a uh, in the answer choice, there's a very nice table to talk about the timing of infection compared to the risk of varicella infection in infants. And it's kind of nice because it goes over um, the various answer choices that we, that we have. So during the first 20 weeks of gestation, um, there's, a, there's a high risk of still developing congenital varicella syndrome. And I think that's the key. The key statement here is that the the risk never really goes away, but at what point is it at its highest? So in the first twenty weeks of gestation, you could still um, 
be at risk for congenital varicella syndrome, and that risk is about 1% to 2%. Now, if we're talking about the second half of the pregnancy up to 21 days prior to delivery, there's a low risk uh, of developing congenital varicella syndrome, and you may develop varicella zoster early in life. Between 20 days uh, prior to delivery, up to six days before delivery, um, little risk of severe disease, maybe mild symptoms. But the choice you selected uh, that I misread initially, sorry again about that, between five days before delivery until two days after delivery, so uh, really in that week that straddles the, the delivery, is when you have the greatest risk since uh, there's insufficient time for protective antibodies to cross to the fetus. Mm -hmm. 17% chance of acute infection, and uh, if untreated, mortality rates reach up to 30%. So nothing to be um, taking lightly. Okay, very well. So I have ID and immunology question 68. You are taking care of a newborn with a congenital CMV infection. The obstetrician has sent the placenta to pathology for further evaluation, and the results are now available. Which of the most likely description in the pathology report of this newborn's which is the most likely description in the report of this newborn's placenta? A fibrosis of chronic villi with placental edema, B, massive hemorrhage involving the majority of the villi, C, hydrops placentalis and round cell infiltration, D, vacuolated cells observed in the majority of the villi, or E, villus damage with thrombosis and villitis with some villi containing inclusion body cells and hemosiderin. Hmm. There's, a, there's a buzzword in there. But There's you gotta a... find it. <laughs> um, what, what's interesting is that when we're talking about infection, you're you're hoping, um, I mean, you're hoping to see some form of inflammation. So, the the component of villus damage and villitis is something that that already points in the right direction. And if you're talking about the inclusion body and uh, inclusion body cells, then uh, yeah, I think that's what I remember from CMV. So I would say choice E. Yeah, I agree. I think the tip off there was the inclusion bodies for sure. Mm -hmm. Because you can see some of these things with other other types of perinatal infections. But most placental infections are, so yes, correct, E, villus damage with thrombosis, villitis, with some villi containing inclusion body cells and hemosiderin. Most placental infections are caused by ascending infections where pathogens ascend from the vagina through the cervix and cause inflammation of the chorion and the amnion known as chorionitis. This can progress to involve the amniotic fluid, the surface of the umbilical cord, and the fetal umbilical vessels. Other infections are bloodborne and can be acquired by traversing the placental villus tissue. The acronym TORCH for toxoplasmosis, the O stands for other, which includes syphilis, varicella, parvovirus. The R is rubella, C, cytomegalovirus, and H, herpes simplex, is commonly used to list the pathogens causing transplacental infections. A CMV infection causes the placenta to have villus damage with thrombosis and villitis with some villi containing inclusion body cells and hemosiderin deposits. Syphilis also causes a transplacental infection. However, the histology of the placenta shows the hydropic placenta and marked round cell infiltration caused by maternal immunocytes. 
the microscopic appearance of a transplacental infection attributable to toxovir, cello, parvovirus, and rubella is a little bit more variable. Okay. Okay. That's all I have. No, no, that's fine. Um, um, for, for people listening, the most CMV is the most common intrauterine infection worldwide. Easy to draft a question with that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And thus, you should definitely know the clinical presentation mm-hmm. that a baby was seen. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm losing You're it. getting silly on me here, buddy. Post-call. Uh, fr- Friday, post-call. <laughs> The wheels are coming off. Um, <laughs> all right, Daphne. Question, uh, question 69, I think, is next. Um, uh, Daphne, osteomyelitis is a relatively rare disease in neonates. However, mm. early recognition of the symptoms is important in order to initiate appropriate treatment and prevent mm-hmm. long-term complications. There are significant differences in both presentation, severity of symptoms, and infecting organisms in children and neonates with osteomyelitis. Which of the following statements about the differences between children and neonates is false? Choice A. Almost all affected neonates are infected by hematogenous spread, while older children usually develop Mm. osteomyelitis from spread of a contiguous infection. Choice B. Bony destruction and sequestration is more common in older children than in neonates. Choice C, newborn formation is more rapid in neonates than in older children. Choice Mm. D, osteomyelitis is more common in children than in neonates. And finally, choice E, septic arthritis often accompanies long bone osteomyelitis in neonates. Again, we're looking for the false statement. We're looking for the false statement. Okay. Um, so I think, um, hematogenous spread, I think that's correct. Bony destruction is more common in older children than neonates. I don't know. Newborn formation is more rapid in neonates than older children. That's probably true. Osteomyelitis is more common in children than neonates. I actually think it's more common in neonates. And septic arthritis often accompanies lone, long bone osteomyelitis in neonates. That's true. Um, I'm going to go with D is false. Osteomyelitis is more common in children than in neonates. I lost my... Um, that is nervous. correct. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was looking at the wrong question. My apologies. Like I told you, Friday, not doing well. <laughs> Uh, that is correct. Neonates, especially those who are treated in the NICU, are at a high risk mm. of developing osteomyelitis than older children. Bacteria typically reach the bone of a neonate by hematogenous spread. We actually had a question mm-hmm. about that earlier this mm-hmm. week. Therefore, infants with central line or indwelling catheters are at a higher risk to develop osteomyelitis as well as sepsis. Contiguous spread of bacteria to the bone occurs more commonly in children. When it comes to newborn new bone formation and bone remodeling after osteomyelitis, this is more rapidly done in neonates than in older children. The vascular anatomy of the developing bone of the developing bone renders neonates more prone to develop septic arthritis as a complication of osteomyelitis. The vascular anatomy of the developing bone renders neonate more prone 
to developing septic arthritis as a complication of osteomyelitis. During the first month after birth, the metaphysis of the long bone lies within the joint capsule and capillaries connect the metaphysis with the joint space. These connecting capillaries provide bacteria easy access to the joint where they can cause septic arthritis. In older children, long bones infection is not associated with septic arthritis. Bone destruction is less common in neonates with osteomyelitis because the thin periosteal tissues allow for spontaneous drainage of the bony abscess into the subcutaneous space. Furthermore, the periosteum is loosely attached to the bone, permitting the decompression of pus along the shaft. Gross. Uh huh. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Um, we have time for one more? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Let's do we go. not? We do. Yeah, we do. No, it's we it's do. the end of the week. It's the end. I'm going to give you question 71. We've done enough osteo and septic arthritis, I think. Um, though they love to test about it. Uncommon. Love to test about it. All right. A pregnant woman has a vaginal herpes simplex virus lesion uh, at the time of delivery. Oh, no. Of the following, the type of HSV that is possible in this lesion is A, HSV type 1, B, HSV type 2, C, either HSV type 1 or HSV type 2. It could be either. That's that's right. Easy peasy for you, okay? Um uh, general herpes infections can be caused by both HSV type 1 and HSV type 2 and are common in adults. Therefore, a substantial number of neonates can be exposed to either type 1 or type 2 during birth. The risk of a neonate to acquire HSV infection depends largely on the mother's immunity to HSV. So if the mother experiences a primary infection, that means she's infected during this pregnancy, she will be shedding HSV during delivery and will not and will not have any circulating antibodies against HSV that could protect the infant. And the risk of transmission in this case, so primary infection, is 57%. If the mother had a previous infection, but with a different serotype, the risk of transmitting the current virus decreases to 25%. In the case of a recurrent infection with the same serotype, the risk of transmission is much lower, 2%. Since the risk of transmission, and sorry, to be clear, so a recurrent infection means she's had she's had the serotype infection before the pregnancy, already made antibodies, she already has antibodies, now she has a new infection um, to which she more readily makes antibodies. Since the risk of transmission is so different, it is important to establish which type of infection the current outbreak represents in order to determine the appropriate management. But Very that's nice. really only true if you know what the previous serotype mm-hmm. was. Anyways, it's quite an odyssey to get the HSV histories. Oh, but <laughs> it, and it often leads that's to... That's the worst part. When you hear that history, you're like, this is going to keep me up all night. All night yeah. long. Yeah. Just doing the paperwork for this. <laughs> and, and, and getting the families to be on board yeah. with, with that evidence. Because every time it's like, well... Well, how does this happen? And it's like, it doesn't always mean what you think it means. Just everybody right. chills. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and yeah. It I've also becomes in... a social situation, oh, doesn't it? Uh, That's right. Um, um, all right, buddy. Good I'll, work. Yeah. I'll see you Sunday for General Club. Sounds good. See you all Sunday. Bye, Doc. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. 
If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphne and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.